Book One, Chapter Two, Sections Four through Eight of The Food of the Gods and How It Came to Earth by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Catherine Eastman. Four. That happened early in June. For some weeks, Bensington was kept from revisiting the experimental farm by a severe imaginary catarrh and one necessary flying visit was made by Redwood. He returned an even more anxious-looking parent than he had gone. Altogether there were seven weeks of steady, uninterrupted growth. And then the wasps began their career. It was late in July, and nearly a week before the hens escaped from Hickleybrow, that the first of the big wasps was killed. The report of it appeared in several papers, but I do not know whether the news reached Mr. Bensington, much less whether he connected it with the general laxity of method that prevailed in the experimental farm. There can be but little doubt now that while Mr. Skinner was plying Mr. Bensington's chicks with Heracleophorbia four, a number of wasps were just as industriously, perhaps more industriously, carrying quantities of the same paste to their early summer broods in the sandbanks beyond the adjacent pine woods. And there can be no dispute whatever that these early broods found just as much growth and benefit in the substance as Mr. Bensington's hens. It is in the nature of the wasp to attain to effective maturity before the domestic fowl, and, in fact, of all the creatures that were, through the generous carelessness of the Skinners, partaking of the benefits Mr. Bensington heaped upon his hands, the wasps were the first to make any sort of figure in the world. It was a keeper named Godfrey, on the estate of Lieutenant Colonel Rupert Hick, near Maidstone, who encountered and had the luck to kill the first of these monsters of whom history has any record. He was walking knee-high in Bracken across an open space in the beech woods that diversify Lieutenant Colonel Hick's park, and he was carrying his gun, very fortunately for him a double-barreled gun, over his shoulder when he first caught sight of the thing. It was, he says, coming down against the light, so that he could not see it very distinctly, and as it came it made a drone like a motor-car. He admits he was frightened. It was evidently as big or bigger than a barn-owl, and to his practiced eye, its flight, and particularly the misty whirl of its wings, must have seemed weirdly unbird-like. The instinct of self-defense, I fancy, mingled with long habit when, as he says, he let fly right away. The queerness of the experience probably affected his aim. At any rate, most of his shot missed, and the thing merely dropped for a moment with an angry whizz that revealed the wasp at once, and then rose again, with all its stripes shining against the light. He says it turned on him. At any rate, he fired his second barrel at less than twenty yards, and threw down his gun, ran a pace or so, and ducked to avoid it. It flew, he is convinced, within a yard of him, struck the ground, rose again, came down again perhaps thirty yards away, and rolled over with its body wriggling and its sting stabbing out and back in its last agony. He emptied both barrels into it again before he ventured to go near. When he came to measure the thing, he found it was twenty-seven and a half inches across its open wings, 
and its sting was three inches long. The abdomen was blown clean off from its body, but he estimated the length of the creature from head to sting as eighteen inches, which is very nearly correct. Its compound eyes were the size of penny pieces. That is the first authenticated appearance of these giant wasps. The day after, a cyclist riding, feet up, down the hill between Seven Oaks and Tonbridge, very narrowly missed running over a second of these giants that was crawling across the roadway. His passage seemed to alarm it, and it rose with a noise like a sawmill. His bicycle jumped the footpath in the emotion of the moment, and when he could look back, the wasp was soaring away above the woods towards Westerham. After riding unsteadily for a little time, he put on his brake, dismounted, he was trembling so violently that he fell over his machine in doing so, and sat down by the roadside to recover. He had intended to ride to Ashford, but he did not get beyond Tonbridge that day. After that, curiously enough, there is no record of any big wasps being seen for three days. I find on consulting the meteorological record of those days that they were overcast and chilly, with local showers, which may perhaps account for this intermission. Then on the fourth day came blue sky and brilliant sunshine, and such an outburst of wasps as the world had surely never seen before. How many big wasps came out that day, it is impossible to guess. There were at least fifty accounts of their apparition. There was one victim, a grocer, who discovered one of these monsters in a sugar cask, and very rashly attacked it with a spade as it rose. He struck it to the ground for a moment, and it stung him through the boot as he struck at it again and cut its body in half. He was first dead of the two. The most dramatic of the fifty appearances was certainly that of the wasp that visited the British Museum about midday, dropping out of the blue serene upon one of the innumerable pigeons that feed in the courtyard of that building, and flying up to the cornice to devour its victim at leisure. After that it crawled for a time over the museum roof, entered the dome of the reading-room by a skylight, buzzed about inside it for some little time, there was a stampede among the readers, and at last found another window and vanished again with a sudden silence from human observation. Most of the other reports were of mere passings or descents. A picnic party was dispersed at Aldington Knoll, and all its sweets and jam consumed, and a puppy was killed and torn to pieces near Whitstable, under the very eyes of its mistress. The streets that evening resounded with the cry, the newspaper placards gave themselves up exclusively in the biggest of letters to the gigantic wasps in Kent. Agitated editors and assistant editors ran up and down tortuous staircases, bawling things about wasps, and Professor Redwood, emerging from his college in Bond Street at five, flushed from a heated discussion with his committee about the price of bull calves, bought an evening paper, opened it, changed color, forgot about bull calves and committee forthwith, and took a hansom headlong for Bensington's flat. Five. The flat was occupied, it seemed to him, to the exclusion of all other sensible objects, by Mr. Skinner and his voice, if indeed you can call either him or it a sensible object. 
The voice was up very high, slopping about among the notes of anguish. "'It's impossible for us to stop, sir. We've stopped on, hoping things would get better, and they've only got worse, sir. It isn't only the wasps, sir. There's big earwigs, sir, big as that, sir.' He indicated all his hand and about three inches of fat, dirty wrist. "'They pretty near give Mrs. Skinner fit, sir.' And the stinging nettles by the run, sir, they're growing, sir. And the canary creeper, sir, what we sowed near the sink, sir, it puts its tendrils through the window in the night, sir, and very nearly caught Mrs. Skinner by the legs, sir. It's that food of yours, sir. Wherever we splashed it about, sir, a bit, it's that everything growing ranker, sir, that I ever thought anything could grow. It's impossible to stop a month, sir. It's more than our lives are worth, sir. Even if the wasps don't sting us, we shall be suffocated by the creeper, sir. You can't imagine, sir, unless you come down to see, sir. He turned his superior eye to the cornice above Redwood's head. How do we know the rats haven't got it, sir? That's what I think of most, sir. I haven't seen any big rats, sir, but how do I know, sir? We've been frightened for days because of the earwigs we've seen. Like lobsters they was, two of them, sir, and the frightful way the canary creeper was growing, and directly I heard the wasps, directly I heard em, sir, I understood. I didn't wait for nothing except to throw on a button I'd lost, and then I came on up. Even now, sir, I'm arf wild with anxiety, sir. How do I know what's happening to Mrs. Skinner, sir? There's a creeper growing all over the place like a snake, sir. So help me, but you have to watch it, sir, and jump out of its way. And the earwig's getting bigger and bigger, and the wasps. She hadn't even got a blue bag, sir. If anything should happen, sir. But the hens, said Mr. Bensington. How are the hens? We fed em up to yesterday, so help me, said Mr. Skinner. But this morning we didn't dare, sir. The noise of the wasps was something awful, sir. They was coming out dozens, as big as ends. I says to her, I says, you'd just sew me on a button or two, I says, for I can't go to London like this, I says, and I'll go up to Mr. Bensington, I says, and explain things to him. And you stop in this room till I come back to you, I says, and keep the window shut just as tight as ever you can, I says. If you hadn't been so confoundedly untidy, began Redwood. Oh, don't say that, sir, said Skinner. Not now, sir. Not with me so distressed, sir, about Mrs. Skinner, sir. Oh, don't, sir. I haven't the art to argue with you. So help me, sir, I haven't. It's the rats I keep a-thinking of. How do I know they haven't got at Mrs. Skinner while I've been up here? And you haven't got a solitary measurement of all these beautiful growth curves, said Redwood. I've been too upset, sir, said Mr. Skinner. If you knew what we've been through, me and the missus, all this last month, we haven't known what to make of it, sir. What with the hens getting so rank, and the earwigs, and the canary creeper. I don't know if I told you, sir, the canary creeper. You've told us all that, said Redwood. The thing is, Bensington, what are we to do? 
"'What are we to do?' said Mr. Skinner. "'You'll have to go back to Mrs. Skinner,' said Redwood. "'You can't leave her there alone all night.' "'Not alone, sir, I don't. "'Not if there was a dozen Mrs. Skinners. "'It's Mr. Benthington.' "'Nonsense,' said Redwood. "'The wasps will be all right at night, "'and the earwigs will get out of your way.' "'But about the rats!' "'There aren't any rats.' said Redwood. 6. Mr. Skinner might have forgone his chief anxiety. Mrs. Skinner did not stop out her day. About eleven, the canary-creeper, which had been quietly active all the morning, began to clamber over the window and darken it very greatly, and the darker it got, the more and more clearly Mrs. Skinner perceived that her position would speedily become untenable and also that she had lived many ages since Skinner went. She peered out of the darkling window, through the stirring tendrils, for some time, and then went very cautiously and opened the bedroom door and listened. Everything seemed quiet, and so, tucking her skirts high about her, Mrs. Skinner made a bolt for the bedroom, and, having first looked under the bed and locked herself in, proceeded with the methodical rapidity of an experienced woman to pack for departure. The bed had not been made, and the room was littered with pieces of the creeper that Skinner had hacked off in order to close the window overnight, but these disorders she did not heed. She packed in a decent sheet. She packed all her own wardrobe and a velveteen jacket that Skinner wore in his finer moments, and she packed a jar of pickles that had not been opened, and so far she was justified in her packing but she also packed two of the hermetically closed tins containing Heracleophorbia four that Mr. Bensington had brought on his last visit. She was honest, good woman, but she was a grandmother, and her heart had burned within her to see such good growth lavished on a lot of dratted chicks. And having packed all these things, she put on her bonnet, took off her apron, tied a new bootlace round her umbrella, and, after listening for a long time at door and window, opened the door and sallied out into a perilous world. The umbrella was under her arm, and she clutched the bundle with two gnarled and resolute hands. It was her best Sunday bonnet, and the two poppies that reared their heads amidst its splendors of band and bead seemed instinct with the same tremulous courage that possessed her. The features about the roots of her nose wrinkled with determination. She had had enough of it. All alone there. Skinner might come back there if he liked. She went out by the front door, going that way not because she wanted to go to Hickleybrow. Her goal was choosing Eyebright, where her married daughter resided, but because the back door was impassable on account of the canary creeper that had been growing so furiously ever since she upset the can of food near its roots. She listened for a space and closed the front door very carefully behind her. At the corner of the house she paused and reconnoitred. An extensive sandy scar upon the hillside beyond the pine woods marked the nest of the giant wasps, and this she studied very earnestly. The coming and going of the morning was over, not a wasp chanced to be in sight then, and except for a sound scarcely more perceptible than a steam wood saw at work amidst the pines would have been, Everything was still. As for earwigs, she could not see one. Down among the cabbage, indeed, something was stirring, but it might just as probably be a cat stalking birds. She watched this for a time. 
She went a few paces past the corner, came in sight of the run containing the giant chicks, and stopped again. Ah! she said, and shook her head slowly at the sight of them. They were at that time about the height of emus, but of course much thicker in the body, a larger thing altogether. They were all hens, and five, all told, now that the two cockerels had killed each other. She hesitated at their drooping attitudes. "'Poor dears,' she said, and put down her bundle. "'They've got no water, and they've had no food these twenty-four hours, and such appetites, too, as they have.' She put a lean finger to her lips and communed with herself. Then this dirty old woman did what seems to me a quite heroic deed of mercy. She left her bundle and umbrella in the middle of the brick path, and went to the well and drew no fewer than three pailfuls of water for the chicken's empty trough, and then while they were all crowding about that, she undid the door of the run very softly. After which she became extremely active, resumed her package, got over the hedge at the bottom of the garden, crossed the ranked meadows in order to avoid the wasp's nest, and toiled up the winding path towards Cheesing Eyebright. She panted up the hill, and as she went she paused ever and again, to rest her bundle and get her breath, and stare back at the little cottage beside the pinewood below. And when at last, when she was near the crest of the hill, she saw afar off three several wasps dropping heavily westward, it helped her greatly on her way. She soon got out of the open and in the high-banked lane beyond, which seemed a safer place to her, and so up by Hickley Brow Coombe to the downs. There at the foot of the downs, where a big tree gave an air of shelter, she rested for a space on a stile, then on again, very resolutely. You figure her, I hope, with her white bundle, a sort of erect black ant, hurrying along the little white path thread, athwart the downland slopes under the hot sun of the summer afternoon. On she struggled, after her resolute, indefatigable nose, and the poppies in her bonnet quivered perpetually, and her springside boots grew whiter and whiter with the downland dust. Flip-flap, flip-flap went her footfalls through the still heat of the day, and persistently, incurably, her umbrella sought to slip from under the elbow that retained it. The mouth wrinkle under her nose was pursed to an extreme resolution, and ever and again she told her umbrella to come up, or gave her tightly clutched bundle a vindictive jerk. And at times her lips mumbled with fragments of some foreseen argument between herself and Skinner. And far away, miles and miles away, a steeple and a hangar grew insensibly out of the vague blue to mark more and more distinctly the quiet corner where Cheesing Eyebright sheltered from the tumult of the world, wrecking little or nothing of the Heracleophobia concealed in that white bundle that struggled so persistently towards its orderly retirement. 7. So far as I can gather, the pullets came into Hickleybrow about three o'clock in the afternoon. Their coming must have been a brisk affair, though nobody was out in the street to see it. The violent bellowing of little Skelmersdale seems to have been the first announcement of anything out of the way. Miss Durgan of the post-office was at the window as usual, and saw the hen that had caught the unhappy child in violent flight up the street with its victim, closely pursued by two others. You know that swinging stride of the emancipated, athletic, latter-day pullet? You know the keen insistence of the hungry hen? There was Plymouth Rock in these birds, I am told, 
and even without Heracleophorbia that is a gaunt and striding strain. Probably Miss Durgan was not altogether taken by surprise. In spite of Mr. Bensington's insistence upon secrecy, rumors of the great chicken Mr. Skinner was producing had been about the village for some weeks. Lor, she cried, it's what I expected. She seems to have behaved with great presence of mind. She snatched up the sealed bag of letters that was waiting to go on to Urshot, and rushed out of the door at once. Almost simultaneously, Mr. Skelmersdale himself appeared down the village, gripping a watering pot by the spout, and very white in the face. And, of course, in a moment or so, everyone in the village was rushing to the door or window. The spectacle of Miss Durgan all across the road, with the entire day's correspondence of Hickleybrow in her hand, gave pause to the poet in possession of Master Skelmersdale. She halted through one instant's indecision, and then turned for the open gates of Fulcher's yard. That instant was fatal. The second poet ran in neatly, got possession of the child by a well-directed peck, and went over the wall into the vicarage garden. Chirac! 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 shrieked the hindmost hen, hit smartly by the watering-can Mr. Skelmersdale had thrown, and fluttered wildly over Mrs. Glue's cottage, and so into the doctor's field, while the rest of those gargantuan birds pursued the pullet in possession of the child across the vicarage lawn. "'Good heavens!' cried the curate, or, as some say, something much more manly, and ran, whirling his croquet mallet and shouting, to head off the chase. "'Stop, you wretch!' cried the curate, as though giant hands were the commonest facts in life and then, finding he could not possibly intercept her, he hurled his mallet with all his might and main, and out it shot in a gracious curve within a foot or so of Master Skelmersdale's head, and through the glass lantern of the conservatory. Smash! The new conservatory. The vicar's wife's beautiful new conservatory. It frightened the hen. It might have frightened anyone. She had dropped her victim into a Portugal laurel, from which he was presently extracted, disordered, but, save for his less delicate garments, uninjured, made a flapping leap for the roof of Fulcher's stables, put her foot through a weak place in the tiles, and descended, so to speak, out of the infinite into the contemplative quiet of Mr. Bumps the paralytic, who, it is now proved beyond all cavil, did on this one occasion in his life get down the entire length of his garden and indoors without any assistance whatever, bolt the door after him, and immediately relapse again into Christian resignation and helpless dependence upon his wife. The rest of the pullets were headed off by the other croquet players, and went through the vicar's kitchen garden into the doctor's field, to which rendezvous the fifth also came at last, clucking disconsolately after an unsuccessful attempt to walk on the cucumber frames in Mr. Witherspoon's place. They seemed to have stood about in a hen-like manner for a time, and scratched a little and jerked meditatively, and then one pecked at and pecked over a hive of the doctor's bees, and after that they set off in a gawky, jerky, feathery, fitful sort of way across the fields towards Urshot, and Tickleybrow Street saw them no more. Near Urshot they really came upon commensurate food in a field of Swedes, and pecked for a space with gusto, until their fame overtook them. 
the chief immediate reaction of this astonishing eruption of gigantic poultry upon the human mind was to arouse an extraordinary passion to whoop and run and throw things and in quite a little time almost all the available manhood of hickleybrow and several ladies were out with a remarkable assortment of flappish and wangable articles in hand to commence the scooting of the giant hens they drove them into urshot where there was a rural fete and urshot took them as the crowning glory of a happy day they began to be shot at near finden beaches but at first only with a rook rifle of course birds of that size could absorb an unlimited quantity of small shot without inconvenience they scattered somewhere near Sevenoaks, and near Tonbridge one of them fled clucking for a time in excessive agitation, somewhat ahead of and parallel with the afternoon boat express, to the great astonishment of everyone therein. And about half-past five two of them were caught very cleverly by a circus proprietor at Tonbridge Wells, who lured them into a cage, rendered vacant through the death of a widowed dromedary, by scattering cakes and bread. 8. When the unfortunate Skinner got out of the southeastern train at Urshot that evening, it was already nearly dusk. The train was late, but not inordinately late, and Mr. Skinner remarked as much to the stationmaster. Perhaps he saw a certain pregnancy in the stationmaster's eye. After the briefest hesitation, and with a confidential movement of his hand to the side of his mouth, he asked if anything had happened that day. "'How do you mean?' said the station-master, a man with a hard, emphatic voice. "'Thee theer wasp, then thinks.' "'We haven't had much time to think of wasps,' said the station-master agreeably. "'We've been too busy with your brasted ends.' And he broke the news of the pullets to Mr. Skinner, as one might break the window of an adverse politician. "'You ain't heard anything of Mrs. Skinner?' asked Skinner amidst that missile-shower of pithy information and comment. "'No fear,' said the station-master, as though even he drew the line somewhere in the matter of knowledge. "'I must make inquiries about this,' said Mr. Skinner, edging out of reach of the station-master's concluding generalizations about the responsibility attaching to the excessive nurture of hands.' Going through Urshot, Mr. Skinner was hailed by a lime-burner from the pits over by Hanky, and asked if he was looking for his hens. "'You ain't heard anything of Mrs. Skinner?' he asked. The lime-burner—his exact phrases need not concern us—expressed his superior interest in hens. It was already dark—as dark, at least, as a clear night in the English June can be—when Skinner, or his head at any rate, came into the bar of the Jolly Drovers, and said, "'Ello, you haven't heard anything of this ear story about my ends, have you?' "'Oh, haven't we?' said Mr. Fulcher. "'Why, part of the story's been in bust into my stable roof, and one chapter smashed a hole in Mrs. Vicker's greenhouse—I beg your pardon—conservatory.' Skinner came in. "'I'd like something a little comforting,' he said. "'Ought gin and water's about my figure.' and everybody began to tell him things about the pullets. "'Gracious me!' said Skinner. "'You haven't heard anything about Mrs. Skinner, have you?' he asked in a pause. "'That we haven't,' 
said Mr. Witherspoon. "'We haven't thought of her. We ain't thought nothing of either of you.' "'Ain't you been home today?' asked Fulcher over a tankard. "'If one of those brasted birds of Pector began Mr. Witherspoon, and left the full horror to their unaided imaginations. It appeared to the meeting at the time that it would be an interesting end to an eventful day to go on with Skinner, and see if anything had happened to Mrs. Skinner. One never knows what luck one may have when accidents are at large. But Skinner, standing at the bar and drinking his hot gin and water, with one eye roving over the things at the back of the bar, and the other fixed on the absolute, missed the psychological moment. "'I suppose there haven't been any trouble with any of these big wasps today anywhere?' he asked with an elaborate detachment of manner. "'Been too busy with your ends,' said Fulcher. "'I suppose they've all gone in now anyhow,' said Skinner. "'What, the ends?' "'I was thinking of the wasps more particularly,' said Skinner." and then, with an air of circumspection that would have awakened suspicion in a weak old baby, and laying the accent heavily on most of the words he chose, he asked, "'I suppose nobody haven't heard of any other big things about, have they? Big dogs or cats or anything of that sort? Seems to me if there's big hens and big wasps coming on.' He laughed with a fine pretense of talking idly. But a brooding expression came upon the faces of the Hickley-brow men. Fulcher was the first to give their condensing thought the concrete shape of words. "'A cat to match them ends,' said Fulcher. "'Aye,' said Witherspoon, "'a cat to match they ends.' "'Twould be a tiger,' said Fulcher. "'More than a tiger,' said Witherspoon." When at last Skinner followed the lonely footpath over the swelling field that separated Hickley Brow from the somber pine-shaded hollow, in whose black shadows the gigantic canary creeper grappled silently with the experimental farm, he followed it alone. He was distinctly seen to rise against the skyline, against the warm, clear immensity of the northern sky, for so far public interest followed him, and to descend again into the night into an obscurity from which it would seem he will never more emerge. He passed into a mystery. No one knows to this day what happened to him after he crossed the brow. When later on the two Fulchers and Witherspoon, moved by their own imaginations, came up the hill and stared after him, the night had swallowed him up altogether. The three men stood close. There was not a sound out of the wooded blackness that hid the farm from their eyes. "'It's all right,' said young Fulcher, ending a silence. "'Don't see any lights,' said Witherspoon. "'You wouldn't from here.' "'It's misty,' said the elder Fulcher. They meditated for a space. "'He'd have come back if anything was wrong,' said young Fulcher. And this seemed so obvious and conclusive that presently old Fulcher said, Well, and the three went home to bed, thoughtfully, I will admit. A shepherd out by Huckster's farm heard a squealing in the night that he thought was foxes, and in the morning one of his lambs had been killed, dragged halfway towards Hickley Brow and partially devoured. 
The inexplicable part of it all is the absence of any indisputable remains of Skinner. Many weeks after, amidst the charred ruins of the experimental farm, there was found something which may or may not have been a human shoulder-blade, and in another part of the ruins a long bone greatly gnawed and equally doubtful. Near the stile going up towards Eyebright there was found a glass eye, and many people discovered thereupon that Skinner owed much of his personal charm to such a possession. It stared out upon the world with that same inevitable effect of detachment, that same severe melancholy that had been the redemption of his else-worldly countenance. And among the ruins, industrious research discovered the metal rings and charred coverings of two linen buttons, three shanked buttons and tire, and one of that metallic sort which is used in the less conspicuous sutures of the human economy. These remains have been accepted by persons in authority as conclusive of a destroyed and scattered Skinner, but for my own entire conviction, and in view of his distinctive idiosyncrasy, I must confess I should prefer fewer buttons and more bones. The glass eye, of course, has an air of extreme conviction, but if it really is Skinner's, and even Mrs. Skinner did not certainly know if that immobile eye of his was glass, something has changed it from a liquid brown to a serene and confident blue. That shoulder-blade is an extremely doubtful document, and I would like to put it side by side with the gnawed scapulae of a few of the commoner domestic animals before I admitted its humanity. And where were Skinner's boots, for example? Perverted and strange as a rat's appetite must be, is it conceivable that the same creatures that could leave a lamb only half-eaten would finish up Skinner, hair, bones, teeth, and boots? I have closely questioned as many as I could of those who knew Skinner at all intimately, and they one and all agree that they cannot imagine anything eating him. He was the sort of man, as a retired seafaring person living in one of Mr. W. W. Jacobs' cottages at Dunton Green told me, with a guarded significance of manner not uncommon in those parts, who would get washed up anyhow, and as regards the devouring element, was fit to put a fire out. He considered that Skinner would be as safe on a raft as anywhere. The retired seafaring man added that he wished to say nothing whatever against Skinner, facts were facts, and rather than have his clothes made by Skinner, the retired seafaring man remarked he would take his chance of being locked up. These observations certainly do not present Skinner in the light of an appetizing object. To be perfectly frank with the reader, I do not believe he ever went back to the experimental farm. I believe he hovered through long hesitations about the fields of the Hickleybrow glebe, and finally, when that squealing began, took the line of least resistance out of his perplexities into the incognito. And in the incognito, whether of this or of some other world unknown to us, he obstinately and quite indisputably has remained to this day. End of Book One, Chapter Two